Please open God's word with me to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. Colossians 1, 24. And I'll be reading down to Colossians 2, verse 5. And here are the words of the Lord to the Colossians and to us. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that you or that no one, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. I think this is an amazing insight we have here into the heart of the Apostle Paul as the Holy Spirit reveals this to us. I think we should be compelled to examine ourselves and our motives in ministry in light of this text. I believe God wants to do that this morning. He wants us to examine ourselves and see why we're here, what we're doing. If it's, if it's motivated for this same purpose, to, to see the church protected so that no one will dissuade you with any kind of arguments or theories or ideologies or even the tempter himself. We pray that as we grow together in our struggles and our toiling and our suffering, we would all see that we're doing this for this reason. It's to, to edify the church, to encourage the church. I believe God wants to encourage us this morning, even in the reading of this text and in the application of this text. When I read this, I, I find myself desperately longing to follow the Apostle Paul's example that's revealed to us here in Colossians. I think as we examine all of Paul's epistles, we should all be challenged to examine our passion and our motives for ministry within this local church family. This text reveals to us what really is at the heart of Paul's toiling and 
suffering and struggling. This text reveals the passion of Paul's heart. And that passion is this, primarily. It is to glorify God, but practically is to do that by encouraging the saints with the truth about Christ and his accomplishments so that no one would dissuade us, no one would deceive us, no one would distract us from magnifying the reconciling work of Christ in the community of the saints. Living in light of our reconciliation to God through Christ, we should motivate, be motivated to love one another, serve one another in a whole and new way by the spirit and the power of Christ that's at work in us as it was in 129 in Paul's own life. This text is, is laid out in the immediate context of Jesus' reconciling work, ultimately to reveal to us that God wants his church to be encouraged by the revelation of what Jesus has done to save us. That's when we have in verse 9 this, this revelation of what, Christ is, what Christ's heart is in the Apostle Paul's prayer. It says, And so from the day we heard about you, the saints, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled or controlled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It is God who qualifies us. It is God who equips us. And he does so so that we would do everything we do for the good of his people and the glory of his name. That's really what Paul's prayer is about there. In, in that passage and in the passage that we read earlier there in Colossians 1, 24 to 2, 5, we are seeing that the Lord reveals how passionate he is when it comes to comforting and encouraging his people. Doesn't this text make you wonder something about the Apostle Paul? He could have theologically and doctrinally skipped over this section because there's not really um, a, a deep, deep theology being expounded here. There's actually his heart being expressed here. Why is it that God wants the heart of Paul expressed to the church at Colossae and Laodicea and to us. I think it's so that we can see that God has a passion for our encouragement that comes through his stewards. God wants us and the Colossians, obviously, to know why Paul is passionately and willingly suffering, toiling, and struggling to reveal the truth to God's people. What motivates his ministry? What moves you and I here in our ministry? I pray that it will be the same thing that we see in the Apostle Paul's testimony here. This passage reveals that it was God's passion and power that was actually motivating the Apostle Paul to serve the church willingly and joyfully. And I just want to remind us that that same power is at work in every believer. God's passion and power is still at work in you that believe. You are now stewards of his passion and his power like the Apostle Paul. I want you to understand that this morning when you feel like you can't do much in your ministry. Understand that God's given you a stewardship. 
And he's given his spirit to you to equip you to do it. That's what 129 testifies to. He says, I'm toiling, but I'm struggling with his energy that's powerfully working in me. Why does God reveal this to us? He's showing us that not that Paul's a, a magnificent servant, but that Paul has a magnificent Savior at work in him for the edification of the church. So I want to encourage you with that this morning. It's Christ's power of love that is at work still in us today. God is passionate about revealing that love and that power through us today as well as it was in Paul's day to the Colossians and the Laodiceans. So let me remind you of that just quickly from this text. Let me remind you of about three things. These aren't the three points of the outline. These are just three things that I want to remind you of that sort of flows out of this text. I think that we need to always keep in our memory and keep in our mind as we consider the truths in this passage God's passion is for his temple's edification, for the building up of his temple, which would be the people of God. God's passion is his temple's edification, and that's why Paul is willfully struggling, and that's why we should willfully struggle also. We should be passionate about the edification of God's temple. Remembering God's passion, I think, helps motivate us to willfully labor to build up one another when we're not necessarily worthy, when we're not necessarily glorious. Yet we know that in our weakness we're called to come alongside one another because that is God's passion. He wants us to come alongside each other and lift each other up, build up one another. We are to carry our weak. There should be no man left behind in the church. That's God's passion. That should be our passion. That's why I think we have this revelation, partly, here in Colossians. Secondly, let me remind you of this. God's passion is not just his temple's edification. God's passion is his body's unification. That's why Paul is faithfully teaching doctrine. That's why we should do that also. Remembering God's passion helps motivate us to faithfully study God's word disciple God's people. It's to prepare us to be united as we labor together to reach the lost in the world around us. We should faithfully teach. We should should do this with all the strength that we have in us and this power that works inherently in those who believe, which is the power of Christ that sanctifies our understanding and calls us to go out into the world and preach the gospel as one body, unified in our doctrine. Thirdly, this text reminds me that that God's passion is not just for his temple's edification, his body's unification, but it's also for his bride's consolation, his bride's comfort, his bride's encouragement. God's passionate about his bride because Christ died to make her his own. And he wants her comforted in this dark world. I think that's why Paul constantly encourages all these churches. I think that's why we should constantly encourage one another, though it may take struggling to do so. Remember, God's passion will help us be motivated to constantly encourage one another practically and personally and sacrificially when our our hearts need to be conformed to his word and, and 
We don't want to necessarily sacrifice our time and ability and our finances for others. Yet God is compelling us to do so because this is his bride. And there are there are people in his bride that are suffering and they need our comforting. Just look at the Apostle Paul's life and think about it for a moment. When he came to faith in Christ, Paul died and Christ reigned in his life. Nothing mattered to the Apostle Paul but the glory of Christ, and that meant pursuing the edification of his church, pursuing their building up, pursuing their encouragement, comforting the saints when they are hurting, teaching them doctrine to protect them, building them up when they are weary. The bride's consolation is Jesus' passion, and I want his passion to be our motivation. I want that passion that God has for his church to be what drives us into our duties and our ministries in this local body. So so by way of encouragement this morning, I want to share with you three reasons, three reasons why we should all willingly suffer, toil and struggle to encourage one another. I'll give you a more detailed outline in a moment. Before I do that, let me just remind you of what I taught you last week. Last week, in, in Colossians 1, 24-25, I, I tried to help you see that although Paul is speaking about his stewardship as a minister of Christ, in, in actuality, all Christians are called to be stewards of God's message and ministry here on earth. We are Christ's ambassadors, all of us. And and through Paul's actions here in Colossians and the revelation of his heart here in this text, I believe God reveals what should motivate all of us to follow Paul's example as good stewards of God's mystery, that is, the gospel. All God's stewards, all, all God's stewards should understand that the church's encouragement is worth, number one, The church's encouragement is worth, number one, suffering for personally. The church's encouragement is worth suffering for personally. And number two, it is worth toiling for practically, toiling for practically. And number three, it is worth struggling for passionately, passionately. The church's encouragement is worth suffering for personally, toiling for practically, struggling for passionately. How do I know that? Because that's what Paul's doing in this text. That's what God ordained him to do. Not just as an apostle, but as an example to the Colossians. He's praying that they would be built up in the faith, in the full knowledge of the wisdom of Christ, and that they would walk in light of that, care for one another in light of that. Be protected by that. Protect one another through that. That's what I want to show you this morning, I pray. So let's begin in Colossians 1, 24 to 26. In in Colossians 1, 24 to 26, Paul reminds us that, number one, the church's instruction, the church's instruction is worth struggling for personally. The church's instruction is worth struggling for personally. Personally, look what it says or suffering for personally. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake 
And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. He's saying, look, I've been given this instruction. I've been given this, this truth that I want to impart to you. And, and in, my, in my efforts to do so, the world has came against me. Their hatred for Christ and the gospel is now focused on his ministers. But he says it's worth suffering for to tell you this. It's amazing. This man was giving up his life quite literally in the end to edify the saints, to instruct them through his suffering, personal suffering. Paul reveals that the instruction of Christ's church is worth suffering for personally. We need to take this to heart. You are worth suffering for personally. Your instruction is worth any kind of attacks that we receive here in this church. It is worth standing for the truth to protect you, to instruct you, to guide you to the mystery of Christ. So that no, no arguments, no false ideologies would come against you and deceive you. This, this passage is not self-boasting, not the self-boasting of Paul. This is God's edification that he's giving to the saints through Paul. Paul had given his life to the work of Christ because he believed that Christ was at work in him for their good. There's no boast in Paul. As you get down to verse 29, you see this. He says, I'm suffering, I'm toiling, I'm, I'm struggling, but it's really Christ. That's, that's showing us something about God's passion for the edification of his church. He would take a man and set him apart and make him an instrument one that would suffer and toil and struggle so that the church would know how much God loves them. We need to remember this. When we're called on to suffer personally as we instruct others practically, biblically, as a church. This text reminds us that the church's edification, its instruction, is worth suffering for because God is Passionate about our edification. God himself is passionate about the edification of his temple. Get it? The building up of his temple. That's what edify means. It's an edifice, a building. He's building it up. He's passionate about the edification of his, his temple because, understand this, here's why. When the church is built up, when it is edified, Christ's work is glorified on earth. When the church is, is equipped spiritually and biblically and we are growing together, facing persecution, facing the world, Christ's work is glorified in the temple of God. We are a city set on a hill. We stand out from the world. We're a light to those in darkness. And the light ultimately is from Christ himself. So God is passionate about us being edified. Think about how passionate God is about our edification. Here's how passionate God is about our edification. Christ's blood was shed to lay our foundation. 
That's how passionate God is about building his church. He shed the blood of his son to lay the cornerstone. Look what it says in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he became or he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple In the Lord, in him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Church family, listen, let me remind you from this text and from Colossians that your your edification is worth suffering for because Jesus is your master builder. He created us. And Jesus struggled in the flesh on our behalf so that we could be established. Therefore, we should struggle to encourage one another and we should do so out of pleasure. Because it's a a delight to magnify the work of Christ and to build up his church and encourage our brothers and sisters who are struggling. I believe it's that revelation that, that Paul was given by Christ himself that motivated all of Paul's ministry. I believe it motivated Paul's suffering. Look with me at 2 Timothy to see that. I believe this was what drove him to edify the saints. He had this love for Christ being glorified in his very being that flowed out of him so much so that he was willing to suffer for the sake of the elect no matter what. He was going to suffer and labor and give himself to Christ to edify his bride, to build up his temple. Chapter 2, verse 1, speaking to Timothy, Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering. Share in suffering. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's their motivation. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share in the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ. Risen from the dead, the offspring of David is preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But, 
The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation, the rescue that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is Paul's motivation. This is Paul's passion because it's God's passion. Christ endured everything for the sake of his church to build up this temple. This, this text and Colossians both remind me that, or they tell me that the motive of our stewardship of suffering should be this. The glorification of Jesus' mission on earth. We, we go through the suffering that we go through to equip and instruct the saints so that we could pursue the mission of Christ here on earth and magnify his greatness through the church. That's why Paul was passionate about his personal struggles for the church. The motive of our stewardship of suffering should be the glorification of Jesus' mission to bring God glory through the church's edification. Church, this is God's passion, and it must be our motivation in ministry if we don't want to suffer burnout, discouragement, and distractions. Listen, if we don't have our eyes fixed on Christ and his mission and his purpose, we will not love one another practically as we are called to in the local church. We'll not be willing to suffer for one another personally. But when you have your eyes fixed on Christ's mission, this can be pleasure. This can be joy. This is what Paul says over and over again in all the epistles. It is my joy that I'm going here and doing this and doing that for Christ and for your sake, though I'm suffering. I mean, doesn't that sound crazy? He knows he's called to suffer for Christ. That was his first revelation that he was given after conversion. And then he goes into town after town knowing that he's going to be dogged by false teachers who will come after him physically. And he says, but it's my joy. It's my joy to do this. Why? Because his joy was to magnify Jesus. That's why he was willing to suffer for the church. And I want that revelation to overwhelm us. And it should overwhelm us. I want it to overwhelm our sense of self-protection. Self-preservation. I want it to allow us to give ourselves away willingly and joyfully for the sake of this church body. I want that for myself. I want God's passion to transform all our hearts our minds, our actions, so that we can glorify the power of Christ's mission through our suffering. We can glorify the power of Christ's sacrificial mission of suffering that created us, that created this spiritual building called the church. Remember, Christ's blood laid the cornerstone, and it's his blood that is the mortar that holds us all together. It's his love that is in that blood. It's the love of Christ that should flow through us as we willingly suffer personally for the sake of this church family. I believe that is what motivated Paul's personal suffering and his practical toiling. Look with me back in Colossians 1, 127. That's what we actually hear in this passage, 127 to 29. In this passage, Paul reveals to us that the church is not, not just its instruction is worth struggling for, but, but its, its unification 
is worth, number two, toiling for practically. The church's unification is worth toiling for practically. Look at verse 27. To them, that is the church, the elect, the saved, the born again, the regenerated, okay? Those that belong to Christ that Jesus died for. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, notice how he toils, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. But notice, it is, it is Paul's toil. It is also his joy. But it's toil, church. Warning people about false doctrine, warning people about sin and exposing sin is hard labor. Equipping the saints biblically, theologically, doctrinally is hard work for the pastor in his study and for the church member in their study. It is hard work. It is toil. But it is worth it. It is worth our practical toiling to see the unity of the church brought to full maturity. He's laboring, he's toiling to bring the church to maturity, to to grow up into Christ. so So that ultimately this unity of doctrine will magnify the theology of who Christ is. The more we know of biblical doctrine, the greater we rejoice in the truth. And the more passionate we should be about telling the truth to those who are lost and deceived in this world. In these verses here, 27 and 29, Paul reveals that the doctrinal unity of Christ's body is worth toiling for practically, physically. Paul is suffering and toiling to see them come to spiritual maturity and bring God glory. This text reminds me, That our doctrinal unification is worth toiling for because God himself is passionate about the unity of his body. He wants his body to be whole, mature, all the parts working together as one, healthy, unified. But let's ask, how passionate is God about our unity? How passionate is God about our unification? Well, Jesus, God the Son, came himself to reconcile our spiritual and doctrinal divisions. That's what it says in John 14. Look with me there. John 14. We were separated from God, unable to come to him on our own. But Christ wanted us to be united to God, reconciled to God. And so Christ himself left heaven's glory, came to earth and humbled himself. Not just in the cradle, but also on the cross to unite us. Not just in some emotional feeling, but unite us in this truth. Separate our doctrinal divisions that lead us astray from the truth by giving us his word. He came to earth to do all these things. Look what it says in John 14, 6. Jesus said, To him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then look on over at verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the whole world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is how passionate God is about our unity. He sends his son to reconcile us and his spirit to teach us, to dwell in us, to give us understanding of truth as revealed by him. It's just like what we saw back there in in Colossians. Look back there in Colossians 1.19. This is what God wants us to be united in. It's the truth as revealed by his spirit that exposes the work of Christ to our hearts and changes our lives. In verse 19, it says this, For in Christ, for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, he has unified in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This passage tells us that the God-man, Jesus Christ, God the Son, took our place on the cross to reconcile our sin debt in full. He paid our penalty to make us one in his body, to make a body that would magnify this doctrinal truth. You see, all the things that we see that Christ did are doctrinal truths. And we need to be united on these things. The church, if we're going to function as one body, we need to have one doctrine. And that needs to be one that points accurately to who Christ is, what he accomplished, and what he promises. Doctrinal truth is what God is passionate about in his people because it purifies us. And if God's passionate about our unity in the truth, therefore, I think we should be passionate about toiling to proclaim it. Not just here in this building, but practically when we leave here. But practically here in this building, we need to see that we have relationships that we can build together on truth and grow together in discipling and loving one another through the truth. And we need to pursue that more faithfully. When we gather corporately, we are discipling one another in a, in a corporate manner. But, but here, when we, we take this truth and we go out with it and we begin to share it with our family and our friends, we're, we're doing it in a personal way. And it takes toiling. It's going to take labor for you to do this. And what should motivate your labor to disciple others and sacrifice your time? It should be that you want to accurately expound on who Christ is to bring him glory. Church, your, your unity is worth toiling for because Jesus lived and died and rose again to make you a part of his body. And he wants his body to be one in truth, one in motive, one in purpose. And I think that's the revelation that motivated Paul's practical toiling here in Colossians. It's his constant testimony throughout the epistles. He became nothing so that he might win many to Christ. He did so so that he could magnify the work of Christ. And he toiled with his hands day and night. And with his heart consistently, according to Acts 20, by ministering to the body, by preaching the gospel to them, by comforting them, 
by instructing the body there in Acts 20, as he addresses the, the elders at uh, Ephesus, he, he's telling them in Acts, in Acts 20 that, that look, I am, I'm leaving, but I have already given you all that you need. I commend you to the word of Christ that will guard you so that you can go on equipping the saints, instructing them. But he toiled at it. And if we're going to be faithful as a church, we're going to have to be willing to toil practically for one another to bring about true unity. These passages and the rest of the epistles really echo what Paul's saying in Colossians 1 and 2. The motivation for, for doctrinal unification, I believe, is truly the exaltation of Christ. We're not just trying to be accurate theologically. We're not just trying to be astute theologians. We're not just trying to be right. We want right doctrine so that we can worship Christ rightly. We can share the gospel powerfully. But listen, church, it takes, it takes toiling to do that. And if we're not motivated by the glory of Christ, we will grow weary and struggle and we will quit and we will sit back and let somebody else do it. But when you get a, a new vision of who Christ is and what he's done according to the scriptures, I think you'll be motivated to labor for others here in this church family. When we understand that this is God's passion, I believe that our studying and our teaching and our doctrine and the application of it, that, that will all become delight to us. When you understand this is God's passion, that we know him that we know Christ, you, you want to study as much as you can about who Jesus is, what Jesus did, how we can explain this to others. This labor becomes joy. This duty is delight. When you understand this is God's passion. And it's our mission as a church. That passion is, I believe, what drove the Apostle Paul to personally suffer and practically toil so that the, the bride of Christ, not just the temple, not just the body and, and those, those metaphors, but the bride of Christ would be comforted as we struggle for her purity in this world, as we, as we struggle to serve her as she fights against sin and Satan and the world's influence. Paul was willing to suffer and toil and struggle to comfort the bride of Christ. Are we willing to do that? I would do anything to guard my wife. I would give up my physical life easily to protect my wife. I would protect her from anyone who would slander her publicly or privately. I would go after them passionately if they did that. Let me put it that way. I had an opportunity the other night to counsel a couple about marriage. And I told the young man, I said, this woman you're about to marry, this, this bride-to-be is precious in our sight. She's precious in Christ's sight. And if you hurt her, we're coming after you. Biblically. Passionately. We're going to exercise church discipline. We're going to do whatever it takes to protect this bride-to-be. If we have that view of our earthly brides, how much greater view should we have of Christ's spiritual bride? We should be eager not just to protect her through teaching and not just protect her through 
through laboring with, but to protect her heart from being discouraged, becoming weary as she exercises her duties on earth. Just like our wives, they grow weary in their labors. We should never take them for granted. We should always comfort them because what they do is precious and actually makes everything else in life work, right? Look with me back in Colossians 2, 1 to 5. It's here that he, he declares to us that the church's consolation, now I use consolation because comfort didn't rhyme, okay? Um, but it means the same thing, comfort, encouragement, consolation. The church's consolation is worth, number three, struggling for passionately. Paul's revealing that the comfort of Jesus' bride is worth struggling for passionately, personally, right? Practically. I think that this is given to us because God wanted the Colossians and the Laodiceans and sovereign grace to know this. Why else is this here? Why else is verse 1 through 5 here? This is a parenthetical thought almost of what Paul is thinking in his heart. Why does he say this? It's not, again, for for self-promotion. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. He's, He's letting them know that power that's working in me back, back in verse 29, it's Christ. It's his love. And I want you to know that even if I can't be there, I'm struggling on your behalf. I want to be there. I think God gives us this because he wants us to know that God, God's love for his church should overwhelm our souls. We should long for this, like the Apostle Paul longed to be with this church so they could be knit together in love. And you can't be knit together in love apart from truth, apart from doctrine. You can't be knit together in love apart from practical application of being willing to labor and love each other in the local church. He's saying all this I've said earlier about Christ's reconciling work with God that he did on our behalf, that's to change the way we act here in the church. And I want to comfort you. By helping you see that, by helping you be knit together in his love, practically, passionately. The church's consolation, the church's comfort is worth struggling for passionately. Because God himself is passionate about the consolation of his bride. That's our motivation. If God's passionate about something, I want to be passionate about it also. Consider how passionate God is about our consolation. First off, he tells us through a special revelation that he's passionate through the scriptures. He wants us to be encouraged over and over again. He reveals to the Holy Spirit that he wants the church to be equipped and encouraged, edified. But also, God has expressed how passionate he is about our comfort in the prayer of Christ in John 17. Jesus himself prays that his bride would be comforted by the truth. By the truth. Look at John 17, 6. This is, this is an astounding revelation when you read John 17. It's an astounding revelation of God's passionate love for us that's being expressed through the intercession of God the Son on our behalf right here. Now, now, 
Sometimes we read John 17 and we think that's a glorious prayer that Jesus is praying for his disciples and we miss the immediate and important context that Jesus emphasizes. It's not just for their sake, but for all those who will hear this message. That's us. Jesus is praying about us. This is how passionate God is about our comfort. God the Son intercedes on our behalf in John 17, and let me add, he is still doing so in glory. Look what it says. This is how passionate God is about our consolation, our comfort, our encouragement. John 17, 6. He's so passionate that he sends his Son to show us his love. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now look further here in John verse 7. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. This is doctrinal truth that God has revealed through his son to us. And they have believed that you sent me. So so Jesus is saying, you know, I've manifested myself to to your people. I've came here to show them how much you love them and what I have promised to do for them. And then he says in verse nine, I am praying for them. And then he makes the distinction, I'm only praying for those that you gave me, only for those people I will die for. I am not praying for the world, he says, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Now, he doesn't, you know, let me stop here. He he doesn't leave us as orphans. He gives us his spirit to confirm these things. He, He shows us over and over again how much he loves us throughout the rest of the New Testament. He shows us that we belong to him. And if we belong to him, he wants us to be comforted by the truth. And so he says this in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them. This is Jesus' prayer for us. Keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. All right, let me explain something to you about that verse. Keep them in your, in your name. You know what he's saying? He's praying, keep them orthodox. Keep them united in truth. Keep them in the orthodox revelation of who you are and why I came. Verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them have been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So Jesus is saying, I'm giving them this revelation. I'm giving them these truths so that you would keep them comforted in the world. Keep them joyful in the world. I've given them your word and The world has hated them. This is why he wants to comfort us. Listen, we have have the light of the gospel of Christ in us. And that light also exposes darkness and evil and Satan's work. And the world hates to be exposed. So Jesus prays that we would be comforted, that we would be kept in his joy. 
He says, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He's comforting us. This is how important our comfort is to God. Jesus is interceding on our behalf, asking the Father to keep us joyful in the world and keep us safe from the evil one in the world. This is the express love of God given to us in this text. This is how passionate he is about his church's comfort. He says, they are not in the world, just as I am not of the world. Then he says this, very importantly. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. His last prayer in that verse is this. Keep them pure, spiritually and outwardly. Keep them safe. Keep them joyful. Keep them orthodox. Keep them united. Keep them comforted. Keep them encouraged. Because they are my witnesses. They will testify to who I am on the earth. And I I know when they do so, Jesus is saying, I know when they do so, they will be persecuted for my name's sake. They will be rejected for my name's sake. They will be ostracized for my name's sake. They will be hated in their community for my name's sake if they preach about the gospel faithfully. So he's praying, God, comfort my people. Comfort my bride. That's how, that's how passionate God is about our comfort. We should be that passionate about the comfort of one another in this church. You're the bride of Christ. You belong to Jesus. And we should seek to comfort one another in the truth, bring joy to one another, and keep one another safe, and keep one another pure. Let, let, let the revelation of what we see in these texts and in Colossians motivate us this morning. Let, let this revelation motivate our actions because this is God's passion and his intention for us as stewards of his gospel. Stewards that are to carry forth the gospel and to comfort one another as we battle in this world of darkness. We need each other. It's God's passion and his intention that we follow Christ's direction. Look with me in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, one. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, being in unity, right? Having the same love in full accord and of one mind, toiling, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look to look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves in your church, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We are to let Jesus's compassion for his church that drove him to the cross to comfort us, to, to bring us hope. We should let that compassion be what knits us together practically in love in this church. And it should make us passionate for the comfort of one another. We should see the hurting in this church family and we should pursue them like Christ pursued the cross on our behalf to comfort us by considering them as more important than ourselves. That motivated Paul's mission, I believe. And I pray that 
our mutual comforting of one another, our mutual consolation will always be motivated by these kinds of revelations. I pray that our mutual consolation will be motivated by a desire for the magnification of Christ's love and mercy and grace as it's displayed in his church. We want, to, we want to display the greatness of our Savior by our comforting of one another. If he died to unite us, his blood still joins us together. And it should drive us to give ourselves passionately for his glory to one another, practically and personally and passionately. The Bible teaches us that there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's a glorious truth. It's a glorious truth. But I think there's something greater. See, the angels are rejoicing over the initial transformation. And if they rejoiced over that, how much more joy is there in heaven when that is magnified through the church's edification and unity and comforting of one another for God's glory. Because when we do all those things, we, we actually testify to the work of Christ on earth. That's God's passion that we do that. And let's pray that that will be enough to sanctify our motives and our mission here on earth. Father, we pray that, that our love for Christ will be seen in our willingness and our joy when it comes to personally suffering for one another and practically toiling with one another and passionately consoling and comforting one another in this local church. We pray that as the world sees our love for one another, that they see our hearts being knit together in the love of Christ and the knowledge of this reconciling grace. I pray that the world would see how great our God is that unites us and empowers us so that as we grow in knowledge, we, we want to live it out. We want to share it with others and give ourselves completely to your work because ultimately that is what is most important in our lives as believers. We live for you. We live for your glory when we fall short, we pray that these kinds of texts will, will wash us and sanctify our hearts and help us to have new eyes to see how, how precious it is to be in the body of Christ and how we should let one another know that this is why I'm toiling for you. This is why I'm struggling for you. I love you because God has loved you with an everlasting love. And I want to see that, I want to see that love brought to full maturity. Lord, let that be our motive for our ministry. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.